that might be the case. Um, and so, yeah, just to, just to set the scene, this is the first Mindful Live for the year. Uh, we're hoping to run these out, um, you know, continually over the coming months in order to really connect with some interesting people within the workplace wellness space. And today I'm delighted to have Gemma Bullock from Rialto. Uh, and Gemma, I'll, I'll, I'll let you introduce I'll, yourself I'll in a moment. Uh, we've got Ben Towers from Happel. Uh, and of course, we have Dr. Nick from Mindful. So uh, without further ado, um, a quick intro. I'm, I'm James, probably should have said that. At the beginning, I'm the CMO here at Mindful uh, and started it uh, with Nick a couple of years ago. Uh, but that's enough about me. Gemma, why don't you give a, a quick introduction to, to yourself and then we can crack on with um, the questions. Thanks, James. Hi, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Uh, my name's Gemma and I work at Rialto, which is a communications and staff engagement app, um, which also offers flexible shift booking. Um, and before that, I worked in the NHS for nine years in various roles, people roles, um, including those in wellness. So it's a real big passion of mine and I'm delighted to be here for the first Mindful Live of the, of the year. And to be fair, James, only eight minutes on the first one. It's not bad, is it? Uh, I think... <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Gemma. Brilliant. Ben. Thanks, Gemma. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ben. I'm a founder here at Happle. We are a people engagement platform to work with companies to offer things like their benefits, recognition and reward, and help managers to really understand and engage their teams. The top line of it is basically trying to make it much more inclusive. At the moment, it's, it's quite a um, selected process, I'd say. Previously to this, um, I had another company, a marketing agency, sold out when I was 18, started doing loads of work with the government, while family, while family. then actually um, became the comms director at Platzo Smith Klein before starting Apple about two and a half, nearly three years ago now. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Uh, and Nick? Uh, yeah, great to be here and great to have you, Gemma and Ben, here to discuss these important topics. Um, yeah, just for quick background, I'm a psychiatrist by training, uh, working in the NHS. Um, I've lived with bipolar for over a decade, and for the last few years, I've been trying to help people look after their own minds in whatever environment that might be, whether it's in the workplace, at home, or in a healthcare setting. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, so this is going to be a very open chat, very and the whole idea chat. of this is to throw out a couple of discussion points, and we can all contribute. So the first one... Um, what actions can a business take to create a working environment that improves mental wellness but prevents mental illness? Yeah, I'll start with that then. Um, I mean, they always they clearly come together. Um, you know, mental wellness. You know, if we build resilience, we build kind of preventative measures into the way we look after our minds. We will ultimately, hopefully, prevent crisis or, or mental illness further down the line. Um, I think these questions are really difficult to ask. There's no definitive um, answers. Um, but I think the best uh, way, first of all, is to try and get the company to engage in a period of reflection and actually kind of validation of what, what are the needs of your people and um, what do they want, I think is one of the questions you need to need to first ask. I really agree with that, Nick. And my, my thoughts on it is, when we do a project or we do an intervention that is short term, that can be quite, um, that's great. But I think actually an organisation needs to think about creating a culture of wellness and creating a culture of looking after people's mental well-being. So therefore that we don't get these 
you know constant instances of this obviously there will be some but actually can we create a culture around this um where we look after people's wellness all the time to keep them well rather than just looking after people's wellness when perhaps it gets bad or when we're already in the crisis stage so for me it's a really around thinking about that bigger picture and how do we make every day a wellness day and where we think about the wellness of our people rather than just thinking about it in times of crisis and i think particularly we saw that during covid when the whole world went oh my god we need to do something for colleague wellness right now um and actually isn't it just that slow steady consistent every day chipping away at looking after your people's wellness checking in with them seeing how they are um and then and then kind of reflecting on that rather than up and down peaks and troughs which you need sometimes for certain certain crises but um for me it's really about that kind of overall culture nice i would say and maybe don't want to start out on a negative but just to set the scene in that sense i think that the the biggest problem i see with companies is they they get into contracts with these well-being providers or well-being solutions and so on and to be quite frank they're crap and that's then leading to this challenge of then employees are not actually getting the true support they really need so for me you know when it comes to really about creating this change in the company i'd say there's steps to be done and that first step is definitely i would always First thing I'd always do is I'd make sure that that final place, so that EAP, that sort of crisis support, is the, is really good. It's not the sort of thing where you phone up and you get put on hold and you have to wait a couple of days to get a response. So it's something that, you know what, you can look at this and go, we are doing the best we can in this case. And then I would then, once I know that I've got that that great sort of solution in place, and often that has to be outsourced. I don't really see it so well internally. But then I think after you've got that, you then have this duty or sort of responsibility to go, okay, now let's look at every stage before that. What interventions, what support can we do as part of that? And some of the best methods I've actually seen have been really making a big focus on managers and really helping managers to be you know, both mental health first aiders, but also having a real clear signposting methods to help managers to you know, get support. Because I've seen companies where you know, I've chatted to the HR director and they've literally been like, look, I'm literally I'm overworked of just trying to support everyone's well-being as an individual. And I think actually, you know what, it's about really passing this out across the team and going, just like you would do for physical health, where you'd look at someone and go, oh, you know what, um, your arm looks a bit bruised or something. Are you okay? How can we help someone do that in their, their mental health point of view? So, yeah, for me, managers are such a key part. And then I also would say the final part is giving people things that work for them. That's what I love about um, sort of, you know, it's mindful event, but I love that mindful is the fact that you know people can have their own individual things to look after their well-being. I think that's also then the final piece of that is to go. Everyone's different. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's running or do something else. And it's really about encouraging that as a company and celebrating the differences. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and a couple of points, a, a couple of points I picked up on there, Nick. And um, one of the things you mentioned is how, how do we know what employees want? Uh, and Gemma, you also mentioned this culture. Uh, and similarly, Ben, the managers and, and understanding what their needs are. So just putting it to you all now, how, what steps would you take to really understand what the employees want and what sort of indicators would there be to establish their needs? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think this is where being data led. I think another thing I was going to say in that conversation we just had is, is that we I think we try we a lot of business leaders or decision makers or managers see wellness as this kind of different, more vacuous, more ethereal um, kind of component within people and HR and the team. But ultimately, as we all know, any business leader knows it's the people that make 
the company. And um, I think what we do need to do is try and create that structure around how we deliver wellness. So we are accountable and we use principles like smart goals that we take from CBT or even OKRs and KPIs that we take from more sales driven, more marketing driven parts of the business. So uh, mindful, we're all about being accountable um, and actually measuring through. It doesn't need to be as um, deep or as deep a dive as perhaps the data you do around marketing and sales, but you can create OKRs, you can create KPIs, and you do that through, you know, occasional workshops, focus groups, surveys, and you make sure that you are learning as you go, but also you can show to a business in three months' time, six months' time, the impact that you're making. I think the important thing, though, is, and actually this is true of lots of other parts of a business, it never turns around in one month. It's, you've got to invest for three, six months, a year, like Gemma was saying. It's got to be consistent. And I think that is where we find a lot of the time the the reassurance that we're providing to new clients is, is that we will do the, the groundwork to make sure that when you go on that um, investment for a year or six months, it is going to be, or we've made it as likely as possible that it is going to head in the right direction for your team-specific needs. Um, yeah, I don't know if, um, what was the other question you had there, um, James? No, I was just wondering how you could really uh, evaluate the employees' needs and what they what they require. Yeah. Um, I mean, so you touched of, upon it there in terms of sort of... Yeah, so one of the ways in which we think we have quite a unique position at Mindful is because of the diverse and kind of, and focus on non-medical social interventions. So on our app, for example, we have close to 100 different activities that are good for the mind. And when we have a cohort of people from a business or a healthcare setting engage with our app, we can quite quickly see which activities are of interest to that group of people. Of course, this is all anonymized, the data and stuff like that. But what that means is, is we can go back to the organization and say, well, actually, knitting is something that is actually really um, valued by your people. So that's something maybe you could provide on the ground within the work environment um, or, and, and things like that. But I think, yeah, the, I think the data play in the wellness place is, is not any longer. There's no excuse to be just uh, magicking up, um, kind of saying, well, you know, it's, it's got to be good because in principle, knitting is good for you. It, it, we've got to actually follow this up with numbers. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah. something else you touched upon there, Nick, was sort of the, the, the investment, the long-term, um, you know, this is a long-term approach, if you like. What challenges do you feel would crop up in having that long-term approach and recognizing that it takes time in order to make these changes? Um, are there any challenges that you've come across, Ben or Gemma, uh, on your journey as a result of these sort of um, long process implementations? Yeah, so I think the challenge with mental wellness, mental health, everyone uses it support is you always want, you always want it to happen quicker. And it's always that thing of, yeah, how can, how can it be here from yesterday? And so, um, yeah, I'd say the, the best executions I've seen from companies has been where they really understood that and gone, okay, let's build a six month roadmap of how we're going to do it. Month one, we're doing this, month two, we're doing that. Um, where I've seen it fail is where companies suspend on every single software they see going all in the same week. And then suddenly they're like, yeah, software overload, no one's using any of it, it's not actually working. You know, new, um, new software launches, new things you're pushing out, need time, need to have that push. And so I'd say that's one side of things. But I'd also say is trust the, the software provider or the, or the provider to really have that support. And I'd say that's a big thing that 
you know, learning. I know for us, we've spent you know, years learning how to build the best launches and ultimately to get the best outcomes. So I'd say that there's also the other elements that really involve them in that in that plan. But then, aside all of that, if you're looking at it and go, you know, it's going to be six months before we see this happen or something like that be implemented. I would then also be looking at, okay, what can we do in the next six months to provide some sort of support? And you know what? The thing is, there is three things you can do to really support support this internally. By three, I mean you know, people time, and that's about it. Well, you can just run events, run workshops, do things um, online, get conversations going. Some of the best campaigns I would really recommend looking at is um, some of our clients did this big thing where we got managers and directors just to do on this all hands in through videos talk about their mental health. You know, Nick's very open about, for example, bipolar and, and you know, about yourself in, in a journey there. And, you know, that ha- will have a massive impact on your team internally. I know at my level, because now it's, you've got this role model who's talking about this publicly. And so I would then say, you know, if you can encourage that, you can do that literally from today. And that's something you can do as like a quick win, really start that conversation. And then as you're building out better software integrations or better partnerships to really build this longer term plan, this is a great way of kickstarting that, that momentum. There's a great um, TED video about it where you have someone at a wedding and there's always that one person when the dance floor is empty, it always takes that one person to walk in and start the dance. And then the second person and the third person, and then the 10th person and beyond is easy because now it's just become this, this big party that everyone's a part of. But those first mm-hmm. few people, it, it is hard. It involves you getting them going and really making it happen. And that's where leaders can be the first ones to speak out, first ones to talk about their experiences and other people will follow through and they'll be like, oh, wow, I now feel like it's a safe space. I can share what I've been through. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it, it lends itself to culture again, Gemma. And any thoughts on how you can sort of bring that culture into yeah. the workplace? Absolutely. As Ben said, it's that. It's easy. Some, it's The hardest part is finding those early adopters, the people that go and dance on the dance floor first, um, and then them in, encouraging their peers to get on board. And I think this is where you should really harness your kind of mental health first health you know mental health first aiders those people that are peers that people feel more comfortable to talk to because sometimes we have to remember that people in our organization feel alienated by their leaders they might not have never met them they might not know who they are um, and it can feel quite it's a very vulnerable thing to be honest about how you're feeling so when people get low response rates on things like surveys it's often because we've sent quite an alienating 50 question survey about somebody's wellness and that can feel really intimidating as somebody so I think something we've really learned at Rialto is we do quick kind of pulse checks on how people are feeling where they can answer with a smiley face or a quick you know quick emoji that feels better to people but then also um how do you quit that movement is around peer-to-peer support as well so and how you can keep keep that momentum going it's really easy to do a nice big shiny launch and it's really easy to do that for three months and then go, oh, none of this has worked, so let's leave now. The hardest part comes after the three months. It comes from the six to the, you know, the six to the twelve months. That's when it's hardest um, because you need to keep that momentum going, and that's when it becomes cultural because it's an everyday conversation about wellness, where every leader, every manager needs to be involved in that conversation. But also, we need those advocates on the ground to talk about how great this intervention's been, how great this piece of software has been we need those advocates Mm. on the ground to talk to their peers about it and i think that's when it really comes to life but also then we need to celebrate successes and we need to showcase how this has worked back to the workforce because people won't trust something unless they've had that social proof so where can we show people actually this has worked in xxx way we've had seen this uptake and from those people this is how much better they feel 
and you don't have to share anything about individuals unless they want to come forward but actually some some people might do you might have a great case, case study that way um but for me it's really about showcasing back to the workforce this is what we've done and this is how we're doing it but then also we've listened to you and this is what we're doing now so you keep that real two-way conversation going um, you never want people to feel like their wellness is being done to them or is a top-down initiative you want it to feel like it's both ways bottom up top down you know everyone's working together on a culture of wellness which is where exa examples of you know nick sharing really vulnerably firstly his journey with bipolar is quite inspiring to people um and then we'll you know well then we'll help and like, as ben says if you've got those leaders talking about their mental health and the bad days they've had and the stress they've felt and then it encourages that vulnerability as an organization but you just have to create that safe space for people really yeah and i'm just going to come in there Gemma, because i think the point that really resonated with me there was that people are vulnerable at work it is a it's a um unusual environment that we've created in the modern world in which um hierarchies of work are totally different to how we interact with family and friends and how we would have done in our normal daily kind of activities um going back uh, a few millennia but the what that means is is that, that i i suppose it's worth me just saying now because i think it is important whenever i you know I, you have to be in quite a strong position to talk um yourself to be able to talk openly and be vulnerable it, it gives you that that space and the confidence to do so um I think, you know, I recently did a campaign with the a mental health trust that I, I work at, um, employs 7,000 people. I think there's about 400 doctors um, and to try and get people to recruit, to be part of this Stamp Out Stigma campaign, to talk openly about their mental health in a work setting. I was the only doctor to come forward. So I think I'm not saying this is, is, is to say, well done me. I'm saying this to be protective of people, recognising that actually it, it is quite just because you see someone doing it on social media or, or on LinkedIn or whatever, don't feel that that's what everyone's doing. And I think this is what I think there's a lot of a mismatch at the moment because there's a lot of talk about mental health awareness. There's a lot going on in the press and whatever. But in terms of actual change in these businesses, it's lagging hugely. And I think that's what we often find when we work with clients is that people, um, the knowledge gap is huge. And particularly in SMEs where um, they haven't had necessarily the space for training and support. So you're finding business leaders and some really dynamic SMEs who are feeling really quite scared about whether they're doing enough and, and what, what should they be doing. And, and so we're often starting right from the beginning with them. And that's what I really liked about what Ben was saying. Like, you're right, we have to get the EAP in, in place first. Um, and it needs to be a good one because we know EAPs have had a really bad rep and there have been some really poor provision of, of care that way. But I think lastly, the... The EAP thing is also important in that, and this is what we're trying to do at Mindful in its early days, but we offer much more of the lighter end of mental health provision. We offer social interventions, but we want to work increasingly with the whole system. Now, we're not going to be able to provide the whole of that, but every part of the mental health provision um, or wellness provision needs to be singing and talking to each other, um, because otherwise um, you'll, you'll find that someone will go into an EAP service and then they'll drop off the cliff after their eight sessions of CBT or after they've had their one session of, of a private psychiatry consultation. And what needs to happen is, is the EAP, once the person's recovered a little bit or um, they then go into the wellness provision and what we're providing more generally as a group in terms of Rayato, Happel and, and, and Mindful. Mm. I just want to touch back on that point, Gemma, that you made on alienation um, and that, that distance between you as an employer and your employees. Um, and 
you know, where do you feel the responsibility lies? You know, where does it end between the employer and the employee? Like, how much do we get involved in their own mental health? Where, where does that responsibility end, essentially? Um, and Nick, that sort of touches on your point about this, the knowledge gap is huge between the managers, the HR people, and actually, um, you know, what they, what they feel they should be offering to uh, their workforce. I would say, well, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because employment law will tell you one thing. Employment law will tell you that, you know, in the core working hours, you should look after your people's wellness. Now, if we look at this more holistically, which I like to do, and think about actually if their wellness isn't great at home, the impact that that has on their working lives. And actually, our responsibility as leaders to look after our people, because great leaders do that. Um, so I think it's, uh, for me, it, it's difficult. And I think this is where leaders get stuck, because they go, oh, actually, after 5pm, it's not my problem. And actually, that's quite quite ch challenging, quite dangerous, I think, sometimes. The other thing I think is really important is what we put out there in, as leaders. So, for example, we might say we're doing this wellness intervention, we're doing this. Then what is the rest of our messaging around performance, around the business? So are we in one breath telling people to go to the stress management course and learn how to manage their stress, but then creating a really stressful environment? And I think this is where this becomes quite challenging. So are we in one moment saying to people, we, you can work flexibly so that you can manage your wellness and then in the next breath telling people we need you to meet these 100 deadlines which are, is unachievable within that time. So I think that's the other thing here is it is within the workplace and in the workspace but are your two messages matching up? Do you really care about people's wellness or are you doing it as a tick box? And I think mm. that's where leaders can, can sometimes struggle. Yeah, and I think on that point, I think there is... Thanks, Gemma. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with this um, kind of giving with one hand and taking away with the other almost and this kind of inconsistency with narrative and, and what we're actually trying to achieve. And I think that can create actually almost more negativity than if nothing was done sometimes. I think the the other thing I would say around um, where, the, where it ends with the employer, I, I'm actually you know, generally from like we know from 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 a legal perspective, um, the responsibilities of the employer are based on kind of effectively case law. So as good practice and, um, rises across the board, as people start blue chips and, and innovators and, and companies on the forefront start offering more, that will trickle down um, and mean and increase the standards expected of businesses. Um, but I think the mindful as a whole is obviously advocating for you know, you know the workplace to step in. We know. Um, the, the state is is um, letting many people down at the moment from an NHS point of view. Um, the workplace is a for us is an obvious um, conduit or opportunity to try and get um, more money spent on um, supporting people's mental health. Um, but the fundamentally, there is also, and I always end on this point, uh, a real the, the the old the ultimate point of any good education around wellness should be also about empowering the individual to take. Um, responsibility for their own wellness goals. So there is a, a very um, blurry line between, and I'm not quite sure where that lands. And it's different in terms of the resource of a company and the um, the demographics of a of a of a work um, working group. But I think um, we are mindful are always wary of making the individual dependent upon the the workplace's provision of care. They ultimately need to take. Um, responsibility for when they leave their job, for, for when life events change um, their circumstances. Mm. Ben, do you have any thoughts on, on that? No, I think tons of you, I think Gemma and Nick have answered that really well, but yeah, I'll just be repeating them. 
Um, but no, I completely agree. Um, so, I mean, this this might appear quite a sort of a clear or obvious um, answer to this, but what what signs would you say um, are indications that that it's not working? That the 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 the, the workplace wellness solution that's been Im implemented is really not working. What are the early signs for those managers, for those you know, for the bosses to sort of recognise? I think the the hard part about this is there's so many other factors which can play into the success or or the failure of your program, and the the challenge behind that is. But actually, you could see more people saying, you know what, I'm fucking with my mental health, but actually the work you're doing is phenomenal. But just the cost of living crisis or whatever else is going on is impacting that. Yes, you can always do more, but it's you know one of those things where it's so hard to truly put your finger down and go, that is the problem and we have solved it. So a few things that I've seen be really successful. One is, and it's, it's the last point in which you can get with data, but definitely include it in the exit interview for employees really understand, you know, when they're leaving, because I, I actually, I quite like exit interviews because I really think you you get a chance to really understand more than you ever would during someone's employment, why they've left, what's what they're really feeling and how it's gone. So I think that's a great data source. It's not the best one to be using because by any means, that's a great data source to, to make sure you're always including and make sure there's a big section on that around, you know, how could we better improve that? But also to say these micro-interventions, um, I mean, someone um, in, the, in the chat actually, I think it was, yeah, it was uh, Greg and Will, was saying around um, you know, more one-to-ones and the impact of that. And I think, you know what, if by empowering managers within the one-to-one to be talking about well-being, maybe even to say, you know what, I've had a bit of a tough week. This is what's gone on in my life. How's your week been? Or something like that. You can then get these micro data points from these employees to then be able to go, okay, you know what, actually feed that back up. There's this potential challenge rising um, that we really need to look at as a company to support people. So I would say you need to make it a business focus to get as many data points as possible in as many different ways to do it. There are some great analytics softwares out there which do it where they will segment the employees up into 52 chunks and then they will ask the employee, different employees at each week time period how their well-being is going and understand trends. And if you have a big enough workforce, you now get a constant pulse of well-being but asking different people. So yes, it's not tracking one person's changes, but you can get a constant pulse of what's the workforce saying at this given time. So there's also things like that you can choose to implement. Thanks, Ben. Gemma, I thought you, I feel you um, might have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think for, for me, I come at it as a bit of a different perspective in terms of engagement. So if I can see that an individual or a group of people or an organisation as a whole are disengaging, then that tells me that the wellness intervention is not working. Obviously, there's many ways that we can track that. We can obviously track all the normal data points like uh, absenteeism and, and turnover and all those kind of those metrics, which I think Ben was referring to. But also, are people engaging with the intervention? If not, why is it? Now, one of those one of those reasons might be because they just don't know about it. They're not aware of it, um, which is a marketing and comms route. And the other one might be that it's just not working for them. And that's when we need to dig deeper and ask why. And the people we need to ask why are the people who have tried it. Um, and we need to have those engagement sessions with them or we need to sit down with them and really understand honestly why it's not working. Is it not working because they didn't have the time to complete it? Or is it not working because they can't, you know, have the time in their day to go to the, to the service that they need to go to? Or is it because the service just wasn't for them when they got there? Um, and often it's the route there. It's kind of like, where did people fall off? the intervention 
and then we can see is it the is it the actual intervention that hasn't worked but is it or is it the fact that we're not giving people the time the space or just being really clear with them about where it is in the first place or how to access it so i think for me that's where um we need to have those and it needs to be kind of one-to-one -one conversations really you can send a survey of course but we know that if people are feeling that way they probably aren't going to fill in the survey they're probably feeling quite disengaged already um they're sending them a you know that that long survey isn't going to help but actually what can we talk to them can we drop them a message can we have a conversation to say how did you find that and probe a little bit around that but i also think that the exit interview is is really important but also i think we should be doing uh, we should be checking in with our people not just at a pdl when we're talking about the performance but we should be doing check-ins to keep people in work we should have retention so you know kind of interviews why we, why are you here what can we do to support you whilst people are still at work so they don't get to that point so yeah that's my mm. thoughts on that and i think i think yeah. that raises an interesting point around psychological safety and, and feeling in a position to share stuff with your um hr manager nick do you have any thoughts on sort of um encouraging or developing psychological safety within the workplace yeah i think it really starts with i really think it starts with civility firstly creating that culture around civility where people feel that if they do speak up they're not going to be discriminated against so i think a lot of this work really clo falls closely with your diversity and equality committees and inclusion committees to make sure that actually when people are speaking up they're not going to experience the stigma so that's the first thing to create a, a really psychologically safe organization um but also just that that and that actually does it always have to be the hr manager that has this conversation because maybe you don't feel a safe there because often people can feel that if they're talking to HR about this, will this be, and, and it's an awful myth, but is this going to be put on my record? Is this going to be held against mm. me at a later time? So mm. how do we create that trust where we say, actually, you can talk to somebody confidentially about how you found this, you know, about this. And, and you can you can be, you can raise this in a different way. But I think it this takes a long time is to build that culture of safety and trust. And that comes again from you again, what they do, do, what they do, do and from oh. that that messaging being really consistent around wellness and then back to some of the things we said earlier around people sharing vulnerable you know vulnerably their experience because if you see leaders doing that you're more likely to trust them and feel safe in their in their presence to share how you feel mm. as well yeah and i think i think what's really interesting there Gemma, is um you know as co-founders nick and i we're, we're obviously having to look after our own employees and then put our own sort of systems in place and give and, and create that trust and you know, we are both very open about our mental health battles and struggles and the journey that we've been on. So it's interesting, just on reflection as a startup, you trying to develop the best, um, you know, work environment for your own employees. So there's lots we can pull from what we're actually delivering to clients into our own into our own businesses. Yeah, and I think that's. Sorry, Gemma, you go. No, I was just about to say. I was about to say, how have you guys managed it? So, where where is that? What have you done, which has really helped in that regard? Yeah, well, I was, that's it's kind of what I was going to say. Actually, is relation to that in relation to that question. Um, I think what is interesting is also a lot of it is about, like you say, doing what you you say you're going to do, and also setting realistic expectations as well. So, because you said one of the first things you should do for example and i totally agree with it in terms of cycle is create stability and security and structure that's really hard in a startup because the, the the speed in which you're moving and changes that you're making in direction can be really unsettling for a lot of people and um, but that's intrinsic to, to the to the to the business and, and the stage of the, of the business cycle that we're, we're in 
So there has to be just an honesty that that we're not going to provide you the same benefits and security as you might get at, at Google or or at some big blue chip company. Um, so I think that's been for us. I don't like the word, but it's used quite a lot now. Is like radical transparency. But I think in a small team where you're moving so quickly, what we like to do is be really we're, we're ultra open about where we're going, right down to the cash flow um, forecasts um, through to kind of what our own mental health problems. So. But as we grow and as we're starting to grow now, we're recognizing that there's only so long that you can operate in that way, especially as the team starts getting bigger. So we're now looking. And I think this is where, you know, a lot of decision makers and businesses get turned off to kind of a bit of a turn off for them, a bit like when you mentioned the word wellness for some people. But it's this investment in system and operations and stuff like that. And that, for me, feeds hugely into morale and wellness because if those are working well and they're smooth an individual is more likely to have more output so they feel better about what they're doing um and they also um sorry that's my wife <laughs> um uh, so so there's this kind of virtuous cycle there but it's one it's another one of those things that requires kind of strategic investment and quite a lot of upfront investment and you won't see the rewards for another three or six months so there's quite a similar kind of space to wellness really hmm. um i'm just i'm just aware of time um so i thought i'd sort of pull, pull this together in a way you know we're obviously working in, in the b2b space and offering these uh, solutions to various organizations but you know fundamentally we're working with the individuals you know like what we're, we're trying to improve the individual the employee's um mental health and so in a way to sort of bring it full circle back to mindful and and, and to sort of our, our philosophy we our, our aim is to encourage people to build their own wellness routines you know I'm, i also have bipolar when i started this journey i recognized that most of the space was dominated by meditation and i recognized that although that's great you know there are other things that i do for for my mind and so i think it would just be interesting to sort of pull this together on 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 what if, if you're open to sharing what you do to look after your minds and that might give some um, immediate tips and tricks for for our listeners ben do you want to kick off yeah i'd say for me um yeah i think one of the challenges you know being, being a startup family is basically always working and especially for us we have a lot of investors over in the us and clients and so on so it means times and wise it's a bit of pain so i've always in tried to work out ways to help my well-being but I can do it any time and have support. So a few things I do. One is um, I love a float tank. Most of you haven't seen them. It's like a, it's almost, it sounds really weird saying it. It's almost like a big bed that you close up and it's like a pitch black thing. And then you'll be, it's full of water and Epsom salts. So you float and you do it for an hour. And for me, so my mind's always thinking. I'm always like top of it, blah, 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 always sort of whirring away. And so that gives me a place to be able just to, to think. So I have to actually sit there thinking that, but it almost do it in an isolated way, think about something, drop it after a minute, think about something else. And just sort of, it seems like a little processing period. So that for me, yeah, try and do that quite often. And then I also, I play a lot of table tennis. I've grown up playing it. And so for me, that's my other outlook because it's time away from devices. Like you can't see texts, emails, anything. You know, you're literally, you have, if, you, if you do try and use your phone, you're going to lose the game. So you just don't do it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing. I tried doing the gym, but actually I realized I was using my phone in between doing things. Actually, it wasn't really Gosh. as productive. So, um, yeah, very about the main two things I'd say I do. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. And we're all about trial and error at Mindful. So I think I'm going to be diving or floating into a flotation tank sometime soon. Uh, Gemma, any, any thoughts from you? Yeah, 
absolutely. So my one of my favourite things to do is to journal. I love journaling. I always journal every morning, but I tend to do that in more of a gratitude practice. I just feel like that gives me some energy in my day, helps me to shake off some of the negative energy. So I'm big on, on doing that. I'm, that's my, one of my New Year's resolutions, actually, is to be consistent and do it every single day. So I think I'm on day 18 now, so we're keeping we're going to keep that going. Um, so that's something that I really like to do, but also just to see my thoughts on paper. Sometimes in my head it can feel really heavy and sometimes even just writing it down for me is a real release of just how I'm feeling mm. and gives me a bit of logic around it because I can kind of step back from this person on paper um, <laughs> and kind of calm my emotions often. So that's really important to me. I do like to meditate. Um, I, do, I do like to do that, but I also really like breath work. I think for when I'm feeling particularly anxious or stressed, um, breath work really, really helps me to feel a lot better. Um, and a bit of Wim Hof in that in that regard. Um, but I also think just the, the really good things of like getting out in nature, going for walks helps me. I used to always mm. listen to podcasts while I was walking, but I found like that gave me so many ideas. So then I would come yeah. back and be like, what? So sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes if you want to close off, it isn't. Um, and I think I think just kind of, it's there's like a toolbox for me and it depends what I need that day, what I pull out. And I think people should, um, kind of try and consider that a little bit more because I think we're told to do all of these 10 things a day um, for, your, for, your, for your wellness and it's kind of what's what I love about mindful is that you can pick out what you need that day depending on how you're feeling um, so whatever that is on, on that particular day but I think just that when you're busy and working and you're stressed just giving yourself time is so important isn't mm. it so just giving yourself that time to do whatever feels good to you that day and not trying to make yourself Sometimes we try to make ourselves do a wellness practice, don't we, um, to feel better. And actually, sometimes if it doesn't feel great for you that day, then maybe it's not for you. And I think that's the, the thing you said around meditation made me laugh, because there are some days where I'm really resistant to that. And there are some days where I really appreciate that. So I think it's just that, that mm. mix. Still, still exploring, still trying to find new things all the time. Absolutely. Aren't we all? And giving ourselves that space. Dr. Nick, what do you do in that space? Do you want to round things off? Yeah, yeah. I try to think of something um, beyond my normal uh, ones. But, I, but the thing I've been practicing most recently, and I, I, I suffer from what I think both Ben and Gemma sound like they do. Like my mind is 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 going too fast often, and I'm just desperate for turning it off. And actually, I, over the Christmas period, I was like, I can't. Like, I need to something. I need something consistent and kind of mindful to engage with. And I decided, really, what I'd call it is kind of nostalgia. So I was like, what can I do that? isn't anything new it's not going to spark loads of new thoughts so actually i ended up uh reading a couple of um the bigger books of harry potter over christmas and i've read that multiple times as a child i absolutely love harry potter it takes me back to a, a safe place um it's engaging yeah, but uh, not too engaging and that's been my new practice and i think it's something useful for whenever i'm feeling you know going up to the christmas period i was feeling really a little bit on edge and struggling to switch off and now i think that could be a tool i could next i think it might be lord of the rings if i make <laughs> but anyway yeah that's brilliant that's brilliant well ben nick Gemma, thank thanks so much uh, for joining our first mindful live this year and thank you to all our listeners on linkedin you know, we'd love to work with anyone out there so please do you know head to mindful.com and you can see the mindful for work tab there but we'll also you know we want to support and work with our partners too so definitely check out Apple and um, Rialto you know we're all in this together with one main goal which is to improve how people feel so without further ado thank you everyone and we look forward to the next mindful live in, in, in a, a couple, couple of weeks, of weeks or so, or so.
Cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot, James.